You're listening to The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe, your escape to reality. Hello and welcome to The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. Today is Wednesday, March 9th, 2011, and this is your host, Stephen Novella. Joining me this week are Bob Novella. Hey, everybody. Rebecca Watson. Hello, everyone. Jay Novella. Hey, guys. And Evan Bernstein. It was on this date in 1923 that Phonofilm, the first motion picture with a sound on film track, was demonstrated at a press conference by its inventor, Dr. Lee DeForest. That's awesome. Wasn't he Bones? Yes, that's exactly right. Sorry. Lee DeForest Kelly. Kelly. (laughs) Lee DeForest was also the inventor of the radio tube back in 07, uh, 07. That's it, just the radio tube and talking film. That's right. Now, this phonofilm system, which recorded synchronized sound directly onto film, was used to record vaudeville acts, musical numbers, political speeches, and opera singers at the time. The quality was kind of poor at first, and it got passed by by other more sophisticated systems through the 1920s as they were developed, such as the Vitaphone. But think about it. I mean, without it, we would not have the movies of today that we, you know, take for granted and, and enjoy the talkies, as they say. So how did that happen? How does it? How does the name evolve from phonofilm, which is kind of cool, to talkies, which is kind of lame? How did that that's, happen? That's English for you. That's that's American culture. English for you. Because somebody came up with that and it stuck, Bob. Talkies know, is cute. It's lame. We have movies. I mean, the reason why we call them movies is just because they're moving pictures. My English friends have teased me about the word movie. <laughs> really? Yeah, like comparing it to the word talkie. I was that reminds me. Uh, I was watching some really cheesy science fiction movie. You know where the, you know how if you have like a primitive person, they they talk stupid. You know, yeah. <laughs> me, they talk me. stupid. Yeah, they me do. Primitive. Don't they, Steve? Stupidly. <laughs> Why? That man talks stupid. <laughs> and yeah, they, so he, he referred to a tranquilizer dart as a stinger bug you shoot me with stinger bug i thought that was really stupid but it occurred to me is that really more dumb than say fireplace you know like words that we take we take for granted because the word it just means what it means fireplace to us is a really stupid word it is that's the fireplace it's, if, you, if you weren't familiar with the word it would sound yeah. just as what is that uh, it's a place where fire goes oh. yeah i was always confused name? with the two words uh Parkway and driveway. Yes, that's the classic one. You drive on a parkway and you park on a driveway. We're not Duh. resorting to email forwards from our aunt circa 1992 now, are we? For jokes? Not quite. We're not doing that. Not quite. I hate you, Rebecca. <laughs> you know it, Jay. You know that was a terrible old joke. All right, then Then cut. Then cut. how about this one? Uh, how come there's interstate highways in Hawaii? Ah, because they do, they joke, do that to get the federal funding, Bob. That's yeah, right. That's, that's exactly Yeah, right. that's true. But let's go on to some news items. First, we're going to get updated on the Northeast Conference on Science and Skepticism Nexus. It's just a scant four weeks away. Very exciting. Very exciting. Can't that's going to be a blast. I was looking at the speaker lineup on online earlier today, which has expanded over the last couple of weeks, and there's a lot of great great presenters there. Uh, yeah, we got Phil Plate as the keynote speaker. Phil's always awesome. I'm just looking forward to seeing George. George will be playing. He'll be George. performing. Yep. Todd Robbins will be our MC, and apparently ne- Nexus attendees receive a discount to Todd Robbins and Teller's hit off-Broadway play, Play Dead. Oh, that's supposed to be really good. Yeah. I saw um, Teller's Macbeth when it was playing um, in New Jersey a few years ago, and it was amazing, all bloody and gory and magical. 
and I've heard that this is very similar, and it's got Todd in it. Can't wait. Who's awesome. Uh, and there's apparently a still a little bit of room left at the speaker's cocktail reception, so you could buy tickets to the speaker's dinner and uh, rub elbows with all of the panelists and speakers for the weekend. We'll all clean our elbows for that, of course. Yes, well, I'll make sure we, our elbows are all clean for that. Yep, so that's in four weeks. It's uh, We're all looking for. Of course, there'll be a live recording of the SGU. For the first time this year. Is that the first live <laughs> the recording this year? Yeah, <laughs> first live recording of the year. And the first one that has occurred in the Northern Hemisphere since last July. Whoa. <laughs> Fact. You're, that's you're right. blowing my mind. Uh-huh. Well, this will be the first Nexus that Rebecca showed up to in over a year. Yeah. Hey, right? hey. Don't act like I was just lazy or something. A volcano got in the way. That's um, the only thing that can keep me from And the dog Nexus. ate your homework. Yeah, I've heard it all uh, before. I will definitely be there this year with Do you know do you know which episode number we'll be recording? 300. Is it 300 and 299. It's 301. 301. I yeah, win. So <laughs> we'll be recording the week before will be episode 300. Well, let's skip that. We'll make Nexus be 300. We'll have to skip a week then. We're not doing that. <laughs> I know. <laughs> yeah. Put it on for a bit. Sacrilege. Could you imagine? People would freak out. Well, Steve, are we using zero as a number or not? Uh, <laughs> no, we did not have an episode zero. But though, if that, since you mentioned, we should go back and record an episode zero. That would be that would be great. Would be Wait, but then what about what about leap episodes? We could have an episode two hundred ninety nine beta, and then <laughs> <laughs> that way the next episode yeah. will be three hundred. So if you would like to see all of us and a, a lot of other prominent skeptics at Nexus in New York on April 9th and tenth, then go to NexusCon. That's N E C S S C O N. dot o r g. And uh, you can register for either Saturday or Sunday or both days. Try to get tickets for the speaker's uh, cocktail reception. There will also be a Friday night drinking skeptically attached to the event, as well as a Saturday night drinking skeptically with a performance by George Hrob. All the details are available on the website, so check it out. If you would like to see us and those other people that are going to be there. But most importantly, see us. On to some more news items. Bob, tell us whether or not a scientist has discovered fossilized bacteria on a meteorite. Well, more crap science has grabbed worldwide headlines. Very annoying this past week. Uh, Recently, a scientician from NASA, no less, claimed in the Journal of Cosmology that he found microfossils within a meteorite that are likely from an alien bacteria-like organism. Now, the initial wave of reporting yet again showcased the starry state of science journalism in the United States. This is a a real interesting quote uh, from uh, Fox News, their exclusive, when something like this, We are not alone in the universe, and alien life forms may have a lot more in common with life on Earth than we had previously thought. That's the stunning conclusion one NASA scientist has come to, releasing his groundbreaking revelation in a new study in the March edition of the Journal of Cosmology. So, wow. Sounds pretty amazing. The early reporting had titles like this. They had stuff like Evidence of Alien Life on Meteorite Found, Life May Have Arrived on Earth by Meteorite, and Ancient Alien Bacteria Discovered in Meteorites. I mean, really pretty definitive stuff, right? Um, so, well, it took a couple days, you know, for rationality to kind of reassert itself, and the tide began to turn, and uh, eventually we got titles like, um, this one was good, Alien Microbes Attack, 
dangers of science news that isn't science or news. That was from an that was a very good article of, uh, from an NPR blog. And then my favorite, I think, was the aliens haven't landed from nature.com. So you can kind of see, you can kind of see the titles changing as, as the days progressed over the weekend and past the weekend. But interestingly, and I, I like to reinforce this, it was the mainstream media who presented the misleading sensationalistic headlines and then more of the blogs and science outlets that started to correct and do damage control and try to put out the real story. What else is new? But also, Steve, as you, as some of the, the real seasoned science journalists got a hold of it, they, they, they did a good job as well. Yeah. So, um, so what happened then? So uh, Richard Hoover is an astrobiologist at NASA's Marshall Space Flight Center, took some old meteorites and he fractured them. He fractured them to observe the newly created interior surfaces with uh, scanning electron mi- microscopes. And he found what appears to be these unusual squiggles and, and unusual formations that, that seem, I guess, uh, on the surface to be reminiscent of certain species of bacteria, specifically uh, cyanobacteria. So the question is, are, are these micro formations, are these, are these really fossils, are they, are they decent evidence of an ancient alien bacteria-like life form? And, uh, the consensus seems to be gathering, um, and it's pretty, um, pretty adamant now that, uh, let's see, what's a good way to put it? No frickin' way. That's one way to describe it. So what about this evidence? One of the best assessments I found came from, um, science blogger Rosie Redfield. She said that, um, uh, the, uh, one meteorite sample showed a couple of micron scale squiggles, one of which contained a 2.5 fold more carbon than the background. Uh, one of the five, uh, orgul samples, I think that's how you pronounce it, had at least one patch of clustered fibers. These contained more sulfur and magnesium than the background and less silicon. So she concludes pretty much as evidence for life, this is pathetic. And it, and it really is. I mean, if, you, if that's really all you're going by, these little, these squiggles and these little bit, little differences in composition based on the, you know, de, when compared to the background, I mean, if that's all you got. It's, that is pretty sad. So I want to go through some of the red flags that it's kind of like a red, the red flag test and see what it tells us. And, you know, what these red flags should have told those early journalists who really acted like, like aliens were walking out of a spaceship on the front lawn of the White House. I mean, it's like really incredible, uh, their, their reactions. Yeah, but you, you know, their, their approach is that we have a NASA scientist saying these things that gives us cover. To, to present really sensationalistic news stories. We yeah. can say it. Who are we? We're just journalists. We're just going to listen to a scientist. If a scientist is saying it, then it must be legitimate enough to report as news. The fact that it was crap... Was they was they didn't care about that? That was irrelevant. Yeah, they obviously didn't. Yeah, they obviously didn't care about it. But I mean, you know, to really put it into perspective, you need to look at you know the extraordinary claims dictum, right? The claim is the evidence for alien life, right? That's pretty much what they're talking about. That they have evidence for alien life. You know, okay, I'd say that was pr- that was a bit extraordinary, don't you think? Mm-hmm. So that means what, kids? It means our evidence needs to be pretty damn solid because that claim is just so extraordinary. But it also means that we have less tolerance for red flags. You know, as the, as the claim becomes more extraordinary, the red flags become, become more and more imp- important. Now, the biggest red flag is, th- is the journal, right? I mean, that, that's really, to me, that's like the, the ultimate red flag that in here. And it doesn't take much research. This Journal of Cosmology, I mean, li- I mean, you need to look at that website for five seconds to notice that there's a problem with this website, and um, and that includes the time it takes for the page to load. I mean, the website looks like it's a refugee from the 90s. You know, I mean, look at the copy editing, the formatting. Even there's no page numbers. Now, Bob, what about like the adage, though? You can't, judge the, you can't judge the book by its cover. 
wouldn't that hold true for uh, for websites? I'm not defending it. I'm just saying. Absolutely, but when you have the discovery of the millennia, I mean. What are you going to just throw it on? You're going to slap this on a, a really lame website? I'm not saying that this is, I'm not saying that this claim and the evidence is crap because of the website, but you got to look at this, these red flags and, and they add up. They totally add up. I mean, this isn't even a journal. It doesn't even exist in print. Um, and if you look at previous, well, papers, I, you know, honestly, Bob, I would that I would not consider that to be a red flag anymore. You have you know like PLOS Medicine, PLOS One, you know the the public uh, library of science online. That you know, so having an a online only journal is fine as long as it's peer reviewed and respectable. And, you know what I mean? NASA has even distanced themselves from their employees' work. Absolutely, this. absolutely. But I mean, they will claim that it's peer reviewed. But the, the people, the peers that are reviewing this, are also putting out stuff on this on this website, like the myth of the Big Bang, and they go on about quantum consciousness. I mean, that's the kind of I mean that that's the kind of level we're talking about. That's the kind of peer well, review it's, we're it's talking about. It's peer reviewed here. like the journal Homeopathy is peer reviewed. Exactly. By other homeopaths. <laughs> exactly. It, it's not you know a prestigious or accepted journal. That's, Absolutely. That's that's reviewed by general scientists. That's the it's reviewed. Right. It's reviewed by people who only who are dedicated to the notion of panspermia and life from space. Right. So right. They have the, an agenda to promote this idea. And absolutely. They, the bottom line is, as science journals go, it's crappy. Although I personally don't think that it has anything to do anymore with it being just online. That's fine. You'd be more you're you're more familiar with journals than I am. And it's going out of business after two years. It's like they're they're closing shop. They can't even sustain themselves. But let me end this section. On a great P.Z. Myers quote on this journal. He said, it's a ginned up website of a small group of crank academics obsessed with the idea that life originated in outer space and simply rained down on Earth. That- so, uh, if you want, I would recommend reading his, his take on this, on this and, uh, and of course Phil Plate. They both, both those guys did a great job on this. I think we can call them crank academics. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good one. Okay, another big flag. Let's go to another flag. And Evan, you mentioned NASA. Is this guy is a NASA scientist? He's a NASA astrobiologist. So where is the involvement of NASA? I mean, you would think you know you've got you're working with NASA, and how come there's there's no mention of them at all? I mean, so to me that was just another huge red flag, and that leads into another one. NASA came out with a statement about this, and they and they mentioned that this was actually submitted a few years ago, I think in 2007, um, to the International Journal of Astrobiology in 2007, and it never got past the peer review process. So, mm-hmm. but um, Dr. Paul Hertz, who's a chief scientist of NASA's science mission director in Washington, he um, he came out with a nice quote. But uh, let's see, one good thing he said here was that uh, NASA cannot stand behind or support a scientific claim unless it's been peer-reviewed or thoroughly examined by other qualified experts, which clearly this one has, has not. So, um, so again, I just wanted to reiterate that uh, the red flag test, you know, it doesn't say that you know, the, the research is wrong. It's just a, I think it's a decent guide for determining the plausibility of a specific claim. It's kind of like Occam's razor. It's, just, it's very similar to Occam's razor in that regard. I mean, they're extrapolating from a, a shape that you could say kind of looks like a specific type of bacteria and like, oh, this was, you know, this was, uh, so this, maybe this is a bacteria-like creature as well. So it's kind of like a hasty generalization. Yeah, um, I mean, I think, uh, uh, I think there's definitely a flaw in methodology here, which I see a lot, and that is using general or vague or nonspecific features in order to make a specific match, right? So 
the right. it, it, we come up we we deal with this in medicine a lot. It's like, oh, you have achy pains and fever. <laughs> well, Lyme disease has achy pains and fever. Yeah, but so does a thousand other things. Right. Yeah. So it's it's those are non-specific symptoms. They don't lead you to a specific diagnosis, and that general principle applies here as well. You have the, the very non-specific features like oh, it's squiggly, and and but you, but you don't see any specific features. The kind of thing that is like a highly detailed match to some known standard. And therefore, you, you can't make a match. All you could say is that it's, it, it vaguely resembles you know, the cyanobacteria. Right. And also, wasn't the scale totally off? Weren't these things a lot bigger than a lot of, A lot of times, the images in the, in the, in the, the, pub, the published paper were, yeah, were you know, kind of misleading in terms of the scale. This is not outrageous as... Hey, don't these squiggles look interesting? I wonder what they are. Let's start to investigate them. But you know what I'm saying? That that's yeah. fine. But but do the due diligence. I mean, do the research to, to try to answer this question as best as possible. Uh, the, the problem here is going right to uh, their bacteria, their fossilized bacteria. And here's some you know really weak, lame, hand waving justification for that claim without really doing. The nitty-gritty research necessary to uh, to differentiate that from other possibilities. Uh, well, let's move on to some actual cool science. Jay, you're going to tell us <laughs> about building biological computers. Oh boy! Yeah, there's a research team at the University of Gothenburg, which is in Sweden, and they recently genetically modified yeast cells so they can communicate with each other using like a gene-regulated communication, which is pretty cool. The changes to the yeast cells allow them to sense their environment. And the, so what happens is the yeast cells become aware of certain things that change in the environment, which they're, the scientists are, are programming into them, specific things that they can detect. And then in response to those changes, the, the cells will secrete some type of substance. And then that substance secretion will communicate to other cells. So groups of cells also can be combined to, cre to create a more complicated circuit type of cell structure, which is really cool. And they, it was described as kind of like Legos, where you have like, you know, a certain color of Legos does this type of thing, another color does this type of thing, and then they piece them together to build more complicated systems. So that's, that's, the, that's where this particular team is, uh, is heading their research. And then, you know, I'm doing some more uh, reading on this topic. And I wanted to know what the scientists were thinking that these types of uh, biological circuitry or biological computing could, could be doing for us, say, you know, in the next 20 to 50 years. So they were saying that um, some simple things would be that they would detect changes in the state of health, right? So let's say that um, they, they would put, put one of these, uh, you know, I wouldn't even know what you would call it as a group, but let's say they have like this little, you know, glob that they would put near <laughs> your internal organs, and they would monitor your internal organs, and let's say that there is a change in the health of one of the organs. So this would be able to detect that. They would also be able to, uh, to sense or detect biological pollutants. So, for example, let's say that someone has mercury poisoning or you know, a threatening level of mercury in their system, that they would be able to detect that in a way that it could be communicated, say, to an external machine or a computer of some type that would let us know. So it's more of like a scanning device. They could also tailor the release of drugs to a specific person's metabolism. That's huge. That is, uh, you know, specific, specifically tailored drugs to to someone's uh, 
you know, how would they, what would be, they be tailoring it to specifically, Steve? I don't know. I mean, I bet you have a better idea. Well, let me give you an example. I mean, I, I've heard about these kind of, of uh, things years ago. Globs. Uh, they're called globs. Well, I'm talking, you know, specifically building circuits out of cells, right? <laughs> so, uh, in one, one potential application, you could get a, a computer chip with neurons laid, uh, laid across, right? So the yeah. neurons are forming this circuit and they could be, um, designed to respond to a seizure in the area. Uh, and then w- when a seizure is detected, they will release um, a neurotransmitter into the environment that is inhibitory, like GABA, right? So the GABA is a, is a basic inhibitory neurotransmitter. These cells would dump GABA into the environment in, in reaction to a seizure and basically stop the seizure in its tracks. So when I was talking to Steve and Bob this morning about this, Bob goes, well, Jay, make sure you research DNA computing. So I did. And wow, Bob, I'm really surprised that I didn't research this before or read about this before because I found a lot of really cool yeah, stuff. They're doing a lot of great stuff with that. So the, the quick one-two on that is DNA molecules, um, which is the material that our genes are made of, have the potential to perform calculations incredibly faster, many, many times faster than the world's most powerful human-built silicone-based computers. Let me give you some stats that I found I thought were really, really interesting. So we would be able to use DNA for computational calculations involving storing, retrieving, and processing data, just like a regular regular systems. So scientists predict that DNA computing will be more compact, accurate, and efficient than the conventional computers that we have today. So listen to this. One pound of DNA has the capacity to store more information than what? Why don't you guys try to guess? A pound, a pound of, D- a pound a of s- DNA? A full pound. Yeah, a pound of DNA. Anything that exists in the universe. Exactly. Uh, wow. It would have more computational inf- power than every single electronic device that has been ever built. What do you mean by computational power, though? It would have the the capacity to store more information than any sing- than the aggregate of everything that's ever been built electronically to date. That's impressive. The computing the computing power of a teardrop sized DNA computer using like DNA logic gates and whatnot will be more powerful than a supercomputer of today, 2011 mm-hmm. supercomputer. That's a teardrop sized DNA computer. In more terms than- of Floating point operations per second, I guess. You're, you're, get, just Bob, pure... you're, get, you're getting too specific. More than 10 <laughs> trillion DNA molecules can fit into an area no larger than one cubic centimeter. And with that small amount of DNA, a computer would be able to hold 10 terabytes of data and perform 10 trillion calculations at a time. Wow, that's three times bigger than my ex- new external hard drive. Wow. <laughs> and unlike conventional computers... DNA computers can perform calculations in parallel to other calculations. So what that basically means is, and computer today, computer has a bunch of things lined up in a queue and it does them in order. Parallel computing that DNA would be able to perform would act more like our brain. It would be doing a bunch of different things at the same time, and then other parts of it would be taking all of those computations and all those all all of those different computations and combining them together and making sense out of it. So that all sounds like you know it's at, we're at the theoretical stage here. We're just saying what's the limits of these molecules, but you know, do we even have an idea of how we would build you know such a system? I don't think so, Steve. I mean, I know that we have DNA computing today that's basic. So what do we mean to get to Windows? <laughs> you know, 
once again, this is another technology that's you know heavily forecasted, um, heavily romanced. We're, I'm sure we'll make slow and steady progress in this with a few uh, moments of punctuated equilibrium. <laughs> All right, well, let's move on. Evan, uh, get us up to date on what this whole supermoon thing is. Did you even know there was something called a supermoon? Pretty excited I never, about it now. I, I, I never heard about <laughs> it <laughs> until recently, until our friends over at AccuWeather.com ran an article in which they let us know that on March 19th, the moon is going to make its closest approach to the Earth. And this is oh, perigee. Perigee. This is called the lunar perigee. Yeah. Very good. Yeah, of course. That's what we kind of talked about that last week, actually. We did. This um, does relate. With the earthquake guy. That's absolutely. A new or full moon at 90% or greater of its closest perigee to the Earth has been named a supermoon. It was named by a astrologer <laughs> named Richard Noley. And yeah, that's why I don't accept this whole nomenclature. Yeah. But that's what makes it great. Like, you you need somebody a little wacky to come up with a good name, like Supermoon. It gets better. It gets better. There's something called an extreme Supermoon. Super Duper Moon. <laughs> exactly. See, that, re- that requires the addition of marijuana. An extreme. <laughs> Someone who's a little wacky. <laughs> you got to follow smoking. We're, we're building blocks here, so you got to follow me. you got to start with one and then go to the other. Yep. So the extreme supermoon is when the moon is full or new as well at, at about 100% greater mean perigee, or its closest distance to the Earth, about 220,000 miles. It's about as close as it ever gets these days. We have this coming up on March 19th. Astrologers and apparently some of the staff over at AccuWeather.com that ran this article, they believe that this coming extreme supermoon may have an effect on storms that occur across the Earth, on earthquakes, on climate patterns, and volcanoes. And tides! Oh, well, sure, if you want to... You know, go for the low-hanging fruit. (laughs) (laughs) Earthquakes, volcanoes, the world may end. The world may actually Mm -hmm. end. Um, There have been uh, these extreme supermoons before in 1955, 74, 1992, and most recently 2005. Wow, what happened back then? They they claim that these years had their share of very extreme weather and other natural events. Yeah, Just like every other year. Exactly. (laughs) <laughs> exactly. That's a that's a fallacy in itself. This is like the syzygy. You guys remember that from the 1980s? Oh, the planet, yeah, the planet lineup. Like the planets yep. are going to line up, and there's going to be stuff. Because it's <laughs> rare. And was there in fact stuff? Oh, all sorts of stuff. Happened. <laughs> it, yeah, it rained and oh god, oh. there was a hurricane, I believe. Dogs um, and cats living together. Ken Ring. We spoke total about, chaos. We spoke about Ken Ring last week. His next warning is. March 20th. He says that there's going to be another earthquake on March 20th. I'm sure, well, I'm not 100% sure, but I believe that Ken Ring foresaw, looked at his charts and whatever, and saw that this extreme supermoon was coming and said, hey, that seems like a good enough date for, uh, for well, me to. Well, yeah, uh, actually, take he specifically said that, he specifically said that the most recent quake was due to the, the perigee, um, even though the moon was actually over. Australia at the time, not New Zealand, so it didn't quite make sense. Yeah, but no. I don't really know how these things are supposed to magically work with the moon and earthquakes, so who knows? Uh, they, yeah, I, they I looked at my calendar. I looked at my calendar on my refrigerator today, and on March 19th, right there, it said supermoon. Mm, there you yeah. go. A moon that's at perigee does mean, does have an effect on tides, yes. 
but the effect but it's, it's is not slight, so right? I mean, huge. I- yes, it's very slight. I mean, it's between something between barely noticeable at all and nothing actually happening. It's not like that recent movie where the the moon gets out of its orbit and it's like. Remember that it's swinging really what? close to the Earth and oh, was going that? really far away. What was that stupid the, movie? It was the day like the after worst. tomorrow. Is that that? No, 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 no. no. It was on TV or something. Yeah. I don't remember that. Yeah, we made fun of it at the time. Remember, like the chunks of the moon were floating in space. I mean, it was terrible. Oh yeah, I mean, that was yeah, a nightmare yeah. you had. I would, I wouldn't make fun of that. Chunks of the moon floating <laughs> in space. Yeah, I remember like a piece of a neutron star hit the moon. You guys remember <laughs> yeah. That? <laughs> <laughs> a, a tiny piece of a neutron star, and it stayed compact, right? Yeah. Uh, yeah so, was... Scientists have been following and have charted the patterns between the times that the uh, moon does get closest to the Earth, and they do actually look at things like volcanoes and earthquakes, weather patterns, and so forth. And they do say, according to the folks at Space.com, that you do see less than a 1% increase in earthquake activity uh, and a slightly higher response in volcanoes. They didn't quite quantify that, but they did say slightly higher. I'd say less than 1% increase, though, in earthquake activity during the, during these times. Eh. Maybe it's even a real effect. Who knows? There's an increased tidal effect, but less than 1%. I mean, it's not right, right. significant. It's not, it's not like world ending. Yeah, we're going to be wrecked by earthquakes. Well, our, you know, and shame on AccuWeather.com, by the way, for, uh, <laughs> you know, just validating more of the astrology craziness that that's out there, you know that. This isn't as bad though as the uh, the myth that Mars is going to look at the, as big as the Moon when it gets to its perigee. God, that comes around every year. Yeah, it? yeah just right. It comes around with Mars. Yeah, so. uh, this this is not quite as dumb as that. Nope. Yeah, most people won't. Well, I don't think you, you're looking up at the Moon. You can't tell naked eye that it's any closer. We're you know. Talk- th- this one might not be as dumb as the Mars being as big as the moon thing, but yeah. it, I think it's worse just because it's part of the fear mongering that, that yeah. Ken Ring specializes in. You know, things that actually frighten people, and I, I, I feel like that raises it to the next level of, of BS. Yeah, I harmful, agree. It's more yes. harmful. Agreed. Speaking of harmful BS, uh, Rebecca, you're going to tell us, about, tell us why an imam retracted their support for evolution. Because he was going to die if he didn't. Ah, Easy okay. enough. That's called the Galileo um, <laughs> response. Right. Yeah, not a bad reason. Yeah. yeah, I think we can all understand that. Yeah, a, a science lecturer in England um, at Middlesex University named Dr. Osama Hassan is an imam, a Muslim scholar who has been quite open about the fact that it's perfectly okay for Muslims to believe in both evolution and in their God. Um, just how we have, you know, we see the same thing with Sacrilege. Christian scientists who, who attempt to help Christians accept evolution as a fact and not something that would immediately disprove their God. The same thing is happening with Muslims. There are many Muslim scholars who are very open about the fact that, that evolution is a fact. So this particular imam said as such, he said that not only that evolution is a fact and that Muslims should basically grow up and stop believing in silly creationist stories, he said that the myth of Adam and Eve is ridiculous and basically for children. Um, he's quite forceful in his opinion. 
and he gave a he he I think he's often given talks at mosques and things like that, trying to encourage Muslims to accept evolution amongst other scientific principles. Unfortunately, there is a small but vocal minority of Muslim extremists yeah, who are vocal. who wield swords. Who right? Who are most likely? Um, I, I've seen it suggested that they're influenced by um, Saudi Muslims, um, and they threatened his life. They he's got several. Um, what do they call uh, it? Fatwas. That's the thing. <laughs> he's had several fatwas <laughs> issued against him, and yeah. the he was going back to the mosque to deliver another talk when the police suggested that he avoid that because they had had some confirmed threats against his life. So he had to apologize for what he said and basically back down from his opinion. And it's a real shame because he's one of the good guys. He's mm-hmm. one of the yeah. moderate Muslims who, just like how we have you know, the Christians here, like Francis Collins, who can help sort of bridge the gap between science and people who are religious, um, you know, these these are people who can help religious people set aside their dogma enough to accept science. And unfortunately, he's being threatened and bullied into backing down. Hopefully, he won't back down for long and he'll be back at it soon enough because we need more of him. Well, we know what's in his heart. We, I mean, certainly we know what he actually really thinks. This is, this is yeah. an obvious attempt for him to just, you know, save himself and perhaps his, his family, you his know, family, self, yeah. self-preservation. Yeah, I mean, it's hard It's hard to be judgmental, you know, unless you're the one facing a death threat. You know, it's hard to sit back and say, oh, we shouldn't, you know, allow himself to be bullied. And at no time did he come out and say, oh, no, my bad, evolution, there's no such thing as evolution. Right. I, I haven't seen anything. I mean, if yeah. he has, it hasn't been reported as far as I can see. Well, apparently he done, said that he went too far. In, right. All, all he did was say he went the, too far in, in, the in declaring these. Yeah. Right. He, because he was what could be considered slightly insulting, I suppose, when he told people to grow up and stop believing in fairy tales uh, like the, the creation myth. So... Yeah, all all he did was was basically apologize for that and back down. Um, but I'm sure it's still obvious that he believes in evolution, yeah. as do I think many Muslims. But yeah, he just won't be wow. saying it so forcefully from now on. I imagine. Right. Yeah. How sad is that? Yeah, and it is sad. But again, like as, while you can't again, you can't blame somebody unless you've been in that position. Uh, you, it still is disappointing in a way, and you still would love for somebody in that position to say, you know, screw you, this is what I think, I'm not going to be bullied or intimidated by, you know, by that kind of, those kind of tactics. Uh, but that's the kind of stuff that happens in the movies, right? Not necessarily right. real life. And also it should be noted that he's not just getting death threats for his views on evolution and for what he said in particular about creation myths, but also because of his um, view that Muslim women living in in the UK should uh, accept the culture and not have to cover themselves, uh, cover their hair. He pointed out that that isn't a religious requirement. It's merely a cultural, cultural. requirement. And that when they're in the UK, they should feel free to go without if they, if they so choose. And that also has pissed off a lot of the more conservative 
and extremist, Extreme. unfortunately. Yeah. Well, yeah, he went too far that time. I mean, come on. Let's be realistic <laughs> right. about it. Suggesting that a lady leave her oh, boy. hair I mean, we, get, we have limits here, people. Evan, it's time for Who's That Noisy? Here was last week's Who's That Noisy? It's about maximum entropy, that the black hole represents maximum entropy. That's not strictly true, and it always used to worry me a bit that if the temperature of the background goes down to below that of the black hole, the black hole will evaporate, and the maximum entropy state is not actually black holes anymore. It's, it's this whole fully expanded universe. All right. Any guesses? Not uh, Joe Bag of Donuts. <laughs> Roger Penrose. Bob, bingo. <laughs> Sir Roger Penrose. How did you possibly know that? I know Penrose. Sir Roger Penrose, an English math- mathematical physicist and professor of mathematics at the Mathematical Institute and University of Oxford. He has received a number of prizes and awards, including the 1988 Wolf Prize for Physics, which he shared with Stephen Hawking for their contribution to our understanding of the universe. Cool. Our friend from the message boards, Norwegian Skeptic, was the first one to guess correctly. Congratulations. How's it going? What do you got for this week, Evan? All right. Here we go. Here's this week's Who's That Noisy? I know what that that's is. a that's a rabbit riding a bicycle. Oh, that's not at all what Rebecca, I was going to do you go know for. What, do you know what that is, Rebecca? Yeah, that's Jay <laughs> masturbating while he's looking at pictures of me oh, on the internet. Now, I thought someone. Oh, <laughs> uh, I figured someone would have something crude to say about that. There it is. This week's Who's That Noisy? Please post your answer on our forums or send us an email at info at skepticsguy.org. Good luck, everyone. Thank you, Evan. We have time for just one quick email this week before we go on with our interview with Ben Radford. This one comes from Fraser Hogg, who writes, I've recently started listening to your podcast, including some of the back issues. I have found Stephen Novella's stance on arguments to match my own eerily well, and am wondering if I am indeed a skeptic. Perhaps a you-may-be-a-skeptic-if list would be humorous. However, I am specifically interested in where your, your panel of skeptics comes down on the definition of a skeptic. I believe I am safe in saying that skeptics believe in logical consistency, are empiricists, and accept ideas that are reached through inductive reasoning based on empirical evidence. Does skepticism, in your opinions, have a stance on realism versus instrumentalism in science and is being cohesive with evidence and generally accepted theory grounds for proof or merely a requirement to warrant further study. If this issue has already been discussed in an earlier episode, I would appreciate episode number. Well, we've touched on this in previous episodes. I definitely think we've talked about, like, what what is a skeptic before. But we've never done a Jeff Foxworthy-like comedy routine about it. That's true. Yeah. Yeah, and for those of let's you who do, Let's do that. Yeah, yeah we love that idea. But, you know, <laughs> I, guess, I could give my, my quickie definition of a, of a skeptic. It's, it is, I mean, it's basically a yeah, lot of the parts with. that he's talking about. And, you know, someone who values <laughs> truth um, and intellectual honesty, uh, who makes a study of the processes by which we know how we know what we know and, and uses knowledge of that of epistemology as well as psychology and neurology to uh, come up with the most reliable conclusions that we can about the factual state of nature. Did you just wing that? Yes. He's only been saying it for 20 years, though. (laughs) (laughs) You get asked that question question (laughs) enough, and, you know, it's it's not that hard to to wing it. But, but yeah, but we do love this. (laughs) You may be a skeptic if list. So we did make some of our own. 
and we're gonna we're gonna warm you guys up with some of our own suggestions about you know you're a skeptic if however when we're done we're going to ask our listeners to either email us um, or Twitter us or put on the forum your uh, su- suggestions for you know you're a skeptic if we will collate these over the next few weeks pick the best of them and then during the Nexus live event we will read off our favorite picks. Who wa- who wants to go first? I've only got go. one. Oh, go ahead, Rebecca. You might be a skeptic if you think you're a skeptic, and then you think actually maybe you're not, and you're really not too sure. <laughs> right. That's that's, that's oh. what I've got. That was one of mine. Damn. I gotta... <laughs> yeah, there's there's bound it. to be some overlap. See, because here's here's my issue with this is that I actually don't like the word skeptic. I know it's in the title of our show and in just about everything I do, but (laughs) (laughs) I I feel that it's, you know, it's shorthand and it's, it's convenient using it as shorthand for one of us. And one of us is, you know, somebody who listens to this show or reads our websites and things like that. But when it comes down to it, I don't think there's any such thing as a skeptic, really, because skepticism is a tool that we each use. And I think everyone on the planet uses skepticism in some way. And I don't think that there's a line I can draw that that allows me to fairly brand one person as a skeptic and another person as not a skeptic. Rebecca, while you, everything you're saying is true, you are in a way committing the false continuum logical fallacy, which is you're essentially saying that because there's a continuum of height that you can't say meaningfully that some people are tall. No, I'm, uh, I'm not. Because there's no line you could draw between short and tall. Um, and, and I think that it's perfectly fine to do something concerning the definition of what a skeptic is in terms of a fun bit on a skeptic podcast. But in the grand scheme of things, I don't, I don't get pleasure out of dividing things into us versus them. And I, you know, and that's not to say that leg, I think yeah. that you guys do. I certainly don't think you do. Um, I just wanted to hopefully put, put that point out there without raining on everyone's parade. Too late. Damn it. <laughs> Here comes the rain. <laughs> you know you're a skeptic if you, you know, if you ruin everyone's fun by being pedantic. <laughs> Pretty much. By <laughs> definition. If you're perfect. A if you're a pedantic asshole. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> wow, you nailed it. Actually, I had, one of the things on my list was, you know you're a skeptic if you have pedantically argued the value of pedantry itself. Yes. <laughs> like That's awesome. That's really good, Steve. You might be a skeptic when you silently name logical fallacies to yourself when you hear your coworkers or fellow podcasters make them. <laughs> okay. <laughs> you might be a skeptic if, if the words pareidolia and post hoc ergo propter hoc are part of your working vocabulary. Oh, I got another one. Here's, here's a good one. You might be a skeptic if you've listened to 250 or more SGU episodes in four <laughs> months or less. Well, it I've, has I've been put done. On, on those lines, you are... You know you're a skeptic if you are listening to this podcast right now. <laughs> okay. I, I went with a more, those lines. I went with a little bit more of a simpler approach, just a couple, you know, quick points, snappy little things, such as you may be a skeptic if your earth is older than 6,000 years. You may be a skeptic if your Ouija board answers idiomotor effect. <laughs> and you may be a skeptic if Oprah makes you want to puke. 
<laughs> so I, geez, I think I think gravity uh, is a Those good way short to approach this exercise. One, one based on my personal experience, you might be a skeptic if you're known around your workplace as the person who always says, "Actually, <laughs> <laughs> I love it." You might be a skeptic when you hear someone say, "Oh yeah," to one of your points. <laughs> <laughs> I got a couple more. Uh, you know you're a skeptic if you think a fun trip is going to Las Vegas and not gambling. Because gambling <laughs> is for the mathematically illiterate. <laughs> well, on that note of traveling, you, you might be a skeptic if you go to the other side of the planet to attend a skeptic conference. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. You might be a skeptic if you use 100% of your brain. <laughs> uh, <laughs> That's good, Evan. All right, here's my last one. Y- you know you're a skeptic if you think Michael Shermer is sexy. Oh, <laughs> what? He's, he's dead sexy. <laughs> now, of course, you could substitute a lot of names for Michael. In all fairness, you know, you could put in Phil Plate or you know uh, PZ Myers. A lot of names you could put in there. But of course, you know, half of the battle there is knowing who these people are. If you know who Michael Shermer is, you probably are a skeptic. That's a good point. Yeah. All right, uh, but give us a B plus on the. On the hardest, yeah. we'll see if our listeners could do any better. I think they, I think they'll come up with some doozies. Well, let's go on with our interview. <laughs> Joining us now is Benjamin Radford. Ben, welcome back to the Skeptics Guide. Thanks. Good to be on. Now, Ben is a scientific paranormal investigator, a research fellow at the Committee for a Skeptical Inquirer, managing editor for Skeptical Inquirer magazine, the author of many books, including the one that we're going to be talking about tonight, and I understand you are also completely bald. I am. Uh, <laughs> it's, it's, it's not alopecia. I'm, I'm, I'm bald in the same way that uh, George Schraub is. So it's, uh, uh, it's a style. It's, it's, it's good company. Okay. You are actively bald, not passively bald. Yes, yes, indeed. But Ben, we're here to talk to you about your latest book, Tracking the Chupacabra. So why don't you start off by just telling us what the chupacabra is? Ah, well, that's <laughs> that's the million-dollar question. Uh, basically, the, the chupacabra is, is the world's uh, third best-known monster after Bigfoot and the Loch Ness Monster. The chupacabra means goat sucker in Spanish. And it's it's uh, notable for being um, probably the, the second best known vampire after Dracula. Uh, it's supposed to suck the blood out of goats, sheep, chickens, uh, livestock, and things like that. Uh, and it's uh, it's been cited primarily in Latin America, uh, although sometimes elsewhere. Uh, but its its main focus has been in Latin America and Spanish speaking places. Why does the chupacabra like in multiple cultures, and why is it hated? <laughs> well, it's hated because people think that it sucks the blood out of their livestock. That's uh, that's the main reason that uh, that there's been such a reaction to it. In fact, uh, in many places, uh, particularly in the late 1990s, uh, in Mexico and Puerto Rico and elsewhere, people would actually band together uh, hunting uh, in mobs for the chupacabra. They would take machetes and and uh, and guns and and uh, baseball bats, anything else they could find, because they they feared that this this blood sucking beast was was uh, uh, was in their neighborhoods and in, in their country. So it was um, for people who aren't, who don't live in that, in that cultural, uh, in that culture, they, it can sort of seem, well, all this is all kind of silly, but you know, if you're, if you're a farmer in rural Mexico or Puerto Rico or, or elsewhere, um, the, the threat of the chupacabra can be very, uh, very real. 
But I, I, I suppose that despite all of these hunting parties, no one's actually managed to kill such a creature. Well, it's interesting. Um, it, according to some people, they have. There's, there's actually two different uh, types of, of the chupacabra. There's the original chupacabra, which uh, appeared uh, around 1995 in Puerto Rico. And that that was uh, cited. It was supposed to be between three and five feet tall. Uh, I had uh, a row of distinctive spikes down its back. It had sort of large alien uh, wraparound eyes, uh, long fingers. Um, it was bipedal. Uh, and it was said to give off a hiss or a, a stench of, of sulfur. And uh, this creature was originally sighted again in uh, in rural Puerto Rico in 1995, and was sighted on occasion throughout Puerto Rico and elsewhere in Latin America, uh, Nicaragua, um, uh, Brazil, Mexico, and elsewhere. That version of the chupacabra essentially faded away around 2000 or so, give or take. Um, and then uh, a second version of the chupacabra appeared actually mostly in Texas around 2004, 2005. And this was, was a canid. These were uh, dog-like uh, creatures, uh, the canids including the Canidae family. So you have foxes, coyotes, dogs, hounds, things like that. Uh, so these were essentially four-legged, um, usually hairless or nearly hairless creatures, sometimes with uh, what appeared to be elongated fangs. Uh, and these were found dead, uh, unlike the, the original Chupacabra. These were found dead in places like uh, Cuero, Texas, Blanco, Texas, Elmendorf, Texas, and a couple other places. That that version of the Chupacabra, again, came, came into its own around 2004-2005 and, and continues to this day. Um, so there's, there's a very – and, of course, the, these are irreconcilable descriptions. I mean, this bipedal, alien-esque creature with the spikes down its back – cannot be, and indeed is not, the same uh, sort of nearly hairless quadrupeds uh, that, are, that have been found. Yeah, so I mean, it's interesting. We're definitely seeing sort of the cultural evolution of a belief, of a mythology. You have sort of the origin. You know, no one's going to find um, that original version of a chupacabra dead by the side of the road, a bipedal alien you know, vampire. Right. But then it sort of evolves, you know, because people are – matching anomalies that they come across to the mythology the mythology sort of morphs to fit the anomalies and i think what i think what you basically have is a bunch of mangy uh, coyotes being found and then being right i mean that's what the pictures look like to me yes uh, being misidentified as chupacabra because that's just what the cultural belief is that's 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 largely correct uh you know what you find is that even though originally chupacabra means again means goat sucker in spanish it, it has come essentially to mean any weird thing that anybody finds so um you know so these days excuse me everything from dead dogs dead coyotes um some hairless raccoons in fact any sort of animal that someone can't immediately identify is often called a chupacabra particularly if it's uh, found in some place where people speak Spanish, particularly in the American Southwest, Texas, and elsewhere. So, yeah, you have this sort of lumping together of anything weird suddenly becoming the chupacabra with no necessary connection to vampirism or certainly uh, the certainly no connection to the original version of the chupacabra that became world famous uh, in 1995 and 1996. So it's kind of like a blob squatch in that you know any yes. any fuzzy thing is is bigfoot or ufo although at least ufo is an appropriate term anything you can't identify in the sky is a ufo although by ufo many people think they mean an alien spacecraft right so again just sort of fitting the anomalies to whatever the mythology is 
depending on which version you take, and, and in fact, I, I should emphasize this, is that even though I'm, I've given you sort of the, the sort of generalized description, they actually vary widely. Uh, some people claim that the chupacabras uh, have wings. Other people say that uh, they look like kangaroos with long, uh, long tails. Other people say that they, they have no tails at all. Um, but again, there, there's two main forms, and they're sort of a catch-all category where, again, anything weird is, uh, is, is labeled a chupacabra, oftentimes because people, they, they go on the Internet. They, they, uh, there's a very strong mass media element to the, the chupacabra folklore, uh, wherein somebody sees something weird. Well, the what weird animal, just, you know, Google weird animal dead plus Texas, and you'll come up with, uh, you know, hundreds of, of images of the chupacabra. And so people will say, oh, well, this looks something like what I have. This must be the chupacabra. So it's sort of the, the self-reinforcing, um, self-perpetuating mythology. It's also, I guess, a similar phenomenon to, um, like, quotations tend to migrate to more famous people mm-hmm. than the people who actually said them. Exactly. So these kind of anomalies tend to migrate to the famous monsters. So again, Loch Ness, Bigfoot, or I guess Chupacabra now is in the number three position, even if they don't really even you know fit the details at all. Mm-hmm. That's ex- that's exactly right. And in fact, what you find, particularly with the original Chupacabra, and the, the original one came from a woman named Madeline Tolentino, who uh, lives and, and still lives to this day in, in the suburb of uh, Canovanas, Puerto Rico, which is outside of San Juan, the capital. And I interviewed her and got her description. It was fascinating to sort of see how, the, the in, in a very real way, the entire chupacabra phenomena boils down to her sighting. It was really this one person that, that first, first sighted this thing. And, uh, and from there, it, it went viral. I mean, it, it was, uh, there was a sketch made of it by a UFO investigator uh, who sort of sketched this thing out, and then he put it on the web. And and then in many ways, and you can actually trace this when you read the interviews, uh, other people's descriptions of the Chupacabra were based largely on hers. So they said, well, you know, what I saw looked a lot like, you know, what was printed on the front page of the newspaper, uh, being the Chupacabra, but, you know, it was a little bit smaller, a little bit darker. And so they they really used her template um, as a description of what it was, which, you know, is, is uh, which certainly raises red flags for an investigator. Right, and this, there really was no uh, no belief in this creature before 1995. So this really is a very recent cultural phenomenon. It is, and, and that's one thing that a lot of people are usually shocked when I when I explain the chupacabra phenomena, the the whole thing is that. People say, "Oh, is, isn't this an ancient evil like Cthulhu?" You know, <laughs> it's like, "I know this is this has been around since '95." In fact, I can I can tell you that it was, it was basically came around on August 10th, 1995. That's it's unusual, if not unique, that you can actually pinpoint and identify the, the origin of of uh, such a world famous uh, mystery creature. But but I have. Um, so yeah, that's that's actually one of the most interesting things. So you know in in Puerto Rico, um, you know, there was a pre-existing belief that something weird was going on. Um, that you know, people thought that you know, well, look, we have these dead animals. They seem they appear to have been drained of blood. Uh, this is, by the way, almost never, in fact, never confirmed by by actual necropsies or, or you know, any anybody any pathologists. But that was the belief, and so. It, it wasn't until this one woman saw this creature uh, in in August of '95 that really put a face on the, on the beast. But in fact, in, in my book, I actually traced the, the uh, I trace it back to its vampire roots, uh, say in, in Europe in the 17 1800s. Uh, there's very strong parallels between 
the vampirism claims and the vampirism beliefs that you see in Africa and in Latin America and Europe. Uh, and in many ways, that's just basically, in many ways, the Chupacabra is just sort of an updated version of the vampire myth uh, brought into, uh, you know, the, the 21st or 20th century uh, Puerto Rico. So that was, ba- you know, in their culture, that was just the boogeyman, just a vague concept of some animal-killing creature, weird thing out there. Yes, that, yeah. That, that, that then took form as the Chupacabra based upon this one woman's report. That's exactly right. And now, every now and then, you'll, you'll come across somebody who will say, no, no, the Chupacabra dates back to the 1970s. And they're referring to um, what's called the, the Vampire of Mocha. And Mocha is a small town on the, uh, on the western uh, part of the island in which there were uh, some vampirism stories and some, alleged, some dead animals, apparently, that were either, either were drained of blood or were claimed to have been drained of blood uh, in the mid-1970s. But there's no particular connection between that and the Chupacabra. And in fact, in researching my book, I actually found um, a, another very close parallel that happened in Nebraska in 1974 uh, that <laughs> looks a lot like the Chupacabra uh, if, you, if you don't look too closely. Are, are there any researchers out there that really take this seriously? Like, you know, there are quote-unquote serious Bigfoot researchers who, you know, are dedicating their careers to trying to find evidence of Bigfoot. Is there a, an equivalent with the Chupacabra? Honestly, not not until me. I don't mean that in an arrogant way. It's just that there's been very, very little serious, legitimate, and certainly skeptical research on the Chupacabra ever. I mean, it, it's only been around again since since 1995. There are a couple researchers that have done some work on it. There's a, a zoologist named Carl Schuker who's done some very good work. Uh, he's in he's in England. Uh, he did he's written a little bit about the chupacabra. Uh, John Downs is another person that's done some on it. Um, but the the vast majority of of the research on the chupacabra has just been it's just basically collecting uh, stories and reports with little or no real investigation. Um, and that that was one of the things that I, I was, to be honest, I was kind of shocked. I mean, I, you, you would think that I would be, you'd think that by now, after having done these investigations for 12 years now, that I would be used to sloppy scholarship. But this was a whole new level of sloppy scholarship, I have to tell you. Was there anything else that really surprised you when you did this, your investigation for the book? But yeah, there were a couple things. I mean, I was, um, one thing that jumped out at me was the, the amount of conspiracy theory that's inherent in Chupacabra folklore. Um, you don't find this in any other monster that I'm aware of. You don't find this in Bigfoot. You don't find this in, in Nessie, Mothman, uh, you know, Spring Hill Jack, take your pick. But in, in the Chupacabra, much of the Chupacabra story and lore, it, and reports are laced thoroughly with, with conspiracy theory. Uh, for example, uh, in one report uh, from Chile, uh, there was supposed to have been uh, uh, some chupacabras that were found, chupacabra eggs, actually, uh, that were uh, supposedly re- recovered that were part of a, a, um, a conspiracy between NASA and the Chilean government. And supposedly uh, the, the monsters then escaped, and uh, and supposedly NASA was working with the Chilean government to try and try and remember. This is kind of so silly. I'm, I'm almost forgotten it. Uh, to try and create a a species that would live on Mars. That damn NASA has their fingers in what? everything. You know, they're they're everywhere. They're they're creating <laughs> right. Um, and in fact, I mean, it even goes back to the Chupacabra's origin. I mean, there, there are basically two two main theories about the, the Chupacabra and where it came from. The first one is that 
it's the result of top-secret U.S. government genetics experiments gone wrong. Um, essentially, the Frankenstein story. Yeah, I'm enjoying reading the book. I haven't made my way through it yet because I just got the review copy, but I'm really enjoying it. Tracking the Chupacabra by Benjamin Radford. Ben, we always enjoy having you on the show. Are we going to see you at uh, any of the upcoming skeptical conferences? Uh, I believe so, yeah. I'm, I'm planning on being at, uh, at TAM and also at, um, I think CSI is having a conference in New Orleans at the end of August or something, if I'm not Oh, mistaken. cool. So, yeah. End, so, end of October, I think, actually. Yes, yeah, sorry, October, yeah. So, um, yeah, I'll be, I'll be around. Thanks. Nice talking with you, Ben. Yeah, always great to talk to you guys. Keep up the good work. Thanks, Ben. It's time for Science or Fiction. Each week I come up with three science news items or facts, two real and one fictitious, and then I challenge my panel of expert skeptics to tell me which one is the fake. Not to label you guys as skeptics or anything, I'm just saying Uh, people with a generally skeptical outlook on life. You guys ready for this week? Let's do it. All right, here we go. Item number one, a recent study shows that migrating songbirds and moths travel at the same mean velocity. Item number two, new research shows that most people are willing to cause direct harm to others as long as they believe no one is watching. And item number three, a new review of research indicates that for most species, natural selection favors greater size and speed rather than average traits. Evan, go first. The first one in which the recent study showing migrating songbirds and moths travel at the same mean velocity. That's fascinating. You think of migrating birds, you know, cruising along at the sky, in the sky in a perfect pattern, you know, heading straight for their destination, and then you see these moths kind of flittering around. And how could that pass? How could they possibly equal the same mean velocity? Number two, uh, the research showing that most people willing to cause direct harm to others as long as they believe no one is watching. Really? I don't know about that one. They're willing to cause direct harm to others. So what? They strip off all of their societal graces and turn into these primal animals that we once were? And Just as long as nobody's watching. I'm a little bit dubious of that one. And then the review of research that indicates... Most species, natural selection favors greatest, greater size and speed rather than average traits. Favors greater size and speed rather than average traits. Well, I'm a little, con- I won't say confused by this one, but maybe most surprised. I, I, I had thought that size and speed were definitely benefits when it comes to uh, uh, survival and uh and uh, having the species go on rather than uh, things that were a little bit slower. So it looks like I'm bending Well, let me, see, the... let me make sure you understand that one, Evan. From, mm, thank like, you. So th- this is saying that natural selection does favor greater size and speed it, rather than, say, uh, individuals with average size and speed, right, or other traits. Yes, and you've made me reconsider <laughs> my answer. No, uh, no I'll stick with uh, what I feel. First sensed as being fiction, which I'm not sure about. Willing to cause direct harm to others, as long as nobody is watching. Well, I'm going to say that one's fiction, and I'll be very disappointed if it turns out that that one is science. Okay, Rebecca. Yeah, I'm. I'm mostly baffled by the 
the the last option, the idea that most species natural selection favors greater size and speed rather than average traits. Wouldn't that mean that species would get larger and larger over time? That's kind of weird. <laughs> and 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 doesn't seem consistent with what we see. So I I don't know, that's very baffling. And also the idea that people would be willing to cause direct harm so long as no one's watching. That flies in the face of other studies I've seen. Like I think um, Wiseman mentions one in Quirkology where uh, people tend to tip more if even if you just put eyes on the tip jar or like a picture of someone looking at them on the tip jar, huh. um, they tend to tip more. So... <laughs> Anthropomorphism of a jar. That's great. Yeah. <laughs> I love it. I, well, I, I guess I wouldn't really contradict that, but I don't know. People are, I feel like people are so um, sensitive to the idea that someone's watching that I think that that would be difficult to really study and... I don't know. These are all freaking me out, Steve. And why are moths traveling at the same mean velocity as birds? That's scary. Moths are so small. And they flutter. They don't really yeah. travel. I can That one I can sort of buy, though, because, I don't know, mean velocity, that, that could cover a lot of gray area. It's not like they're in a race or anything. So, <laughs> all right, that one I'll, I'll buy. Which makes it down between the last two. Come on, direct harm, Rebecca. Come on. Yeah, I, I guess, I guess I'll go with that one. That does seem to be the fishiest one, I guess, but I'm very unsure this week. Good job, Steve. Good job. Okay, so you're going with the uh, direct harm. Yeah. Okay, Bob. Yeah, the birds and moths, it seems odd on the surface. I uh, mean, you know, mean velocity. So I could see something funky going on there with, um, with the velocity, um, I think there's some slippery way out of that one that I'm not quite seeing exactly why. And the third one, yeah, that, that one seems, they, they all seem odd. So yeah, Steve did a great job this week. Uh, that one seems odd as well, because you would think that species would be in, you know, in homeostasis with their environment and there wouldn't be any, um, you know, it, it would, natural selection would favor the average traits and not the, not the greater size and speed, but there's also something about that 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 also kind of makes sense. It's kind of hard to put my finger on it. So uh, yeah, I think I'm gonna have to join the crowd and go with the the direct harm one. I'm, the classic experiments with authority, you know, with an authority figure telling you to hurt someone. People didn't have too much trouble doing it then, I, if I'm remembering correctly. But this one, when they believe no one's watching, I don't, people are people could be nasty, but I don't think they're they're quite that nasty. Uh, so I have to say that one is fiction, I guess. Okay, Jay. All right, a recent study shows that migrating songbirds and moths travel at the same mean velocity. You're saying that they're, like, pretty pissed off, like when they're flying? Yes, Thank you, mean Rebecca. velocity, yes, that's exactly. Uh, <laughs> I didn't say it. I, I, I didn't say how? How could, a, how could a moth and a songbird travel at the same velocity? How? So you're, you're, just, you're just trying to create fodder for your... The, the year-end wrap-up, Jay is baffled. <laughs> <laughs> Very clever, Jay. Yeah, okay, because that does clever. that sounds totally sane to everyone here, right? A moth at, at its best, what, has a, has a wingspan of... I mean, I'll say that there's moths that I don't know about that have really big wingspans. Okay, let's say it's three inches. How big is the wingspan of a, uh, of a songbird? 
There's bigger moths than that. African or European? Yeah, but they don't have the... Jay, are you you trying to convince people that three inches is huge? (laughs) Again. (laughs) That's all I have. No, it's... The idea here is that there's not enough body weight to a moth. I mean, a moth can't really pick up that much of a velocity unless it's like flying in a tailwind or something. I I just don't like that one. There's something that just doesn't seem... uh, The physics there don't work for me. All right, new research shows... That most people are willing to cause direct harm to others as long as they believe no one is watching. What? Direct harm? Like, what do you mean? Like, I could, if nobody's watching, I could just pull o- you know, d- drive over someone on the sidewalk? I, that seems ridiculous to me, too. It's a victimless crime, like punching someone in the dark. <laughs> <laughs> it sounds like The Simpsons. And Was it? Like, yeah. No, and what yep. are the, what are the no, circumstances no, no. here, yeah. Steve? I mean, there's no circumstances in this. I mean, what it... Would I do harm to someone that I think is evil or bad or hurting other people if I could get away with it? Sure, I'd be more likely to do that. I can admit that here. But there's not enough information here, so I, I, I don't really you know, no, don't know which way to go with that one. And the last one is a new review of research indicates that for most species, natural selection favors greater size and speed rather than average traits. Well, man, size and speed are pretty damn kick-ass. They, they accomplish a lot of different things. Um, so I, I'm going to agree with that. And I'm going to say that I cannot see a moth flying faster than a songbird. Okay, so we'll we'll start with number three then. Uh, a new review of research indicates that for most species, natural selection favors greater size and speed rather than average traits. You guys all agree with that one, and that one mm-hmm. is the science. Mm-hmm. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> Steve, you got me, you bastard. <laughs> Steve, you should know better than to tease us like that. So, yeah, this this is actually – I wasn't sure if you guys would pick up on how surprising this is, that you know, the notion is that most species are at equilibrium with their environment so that um, natural selection should favor the average traits because they're already optimal, you know? They've already been optimized. A bird is as big as it should be, so anything that's too big or too small should be selected against. Um, but what uh, most – uh, surveys have shown most species where this this has been examined that the uh, larger uh, larger individuals have a survival advantage um, over over their their smaller counterparts as well as creatures that are faster that breed earlier that you know hatch from their eggs quicker they, they, all these creatures actually do have a survival and reproductive advantage. So then that, of course, creates the question, well, then how come, as Rebecca said, how come everything isn't then just endlessly getting bigger and bigger and bigger? And there are several theories as to why that is the case. So uh, the authors of this paper explored a few possibilities. They said um, that evolving bigger and faster comes at a cost. Uh, you know, it could cost a lot of energy, a lot of, you know, a lot of food, or they gave a specific example, guppies that are more brightly colored. The males are better at attracting mates, but also get eaten more quickly. Yeah, they also attract predators. So while they're looking at specific traits, they may show that that has an immediate advantage, but it could run into limits or be offset by by disadvantages, or that uh, they may be their, their... so they're selected for at some times or under certain circumstances, but not at others. And again, it 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 averages out or balances out over time. 
So these are just, you know, again, it's, it's complicated to, to, to sort of think about how this all sorts itself out. But it's not so simple as because size is, a, is an immediate advantage that, that species would then endlessly get bigger and bigger. But that was a surprising result. I mean, the, the researchers were definitely surprised when they reviewed the literature that, in fact, for most animals and, plant, and plants, that this is, in fact, the case because it's not what we observe in terms of the bigger picture, right? All right, well, let's go on to number one. A recent study shows that migrating bird, songbirds and moths travel at the same mean velocity. Jay, you think this one is the fiction. The rest of you buy it. And this one is science. Of course, birds do fly a lot faster than moths, which makes this result very surprising. Uh, What the researchers found was that the birds and the moths adopted different strategies for migrating that birds will just fly no matter what the wind uh, direction or speed is. They just sort of power through. Uh, But the moths will only be – they'll only fly when the wind is moving in the direction that they want to go. And then they'll (laughs) they'll, they'll stop flying when the wind is not going in that direction. So they they take much greater advantage of, of the wind direction and the wind speed. And at the, over a long migrational period, this this averages out. This works in their favor to the point that that they actually cover as much ground as the songbirds do in the same amount of time. That's awesome. Yeah, isn't that interesting? All of this means that new research shows that most people are willing to cause direct harm to others as long as they believe no one is watching is the fiction. So Yay. good job. High else? five, guys. Woo-hoo. Now, what the what the research really showed is that people were more willing to let bad things happen through inaction than they were to cause direct harm by taking some action. Duh. This is nothing new. This is this has been established through research in that you know people are uh, more emotionally bothered by the notion of causing direct harm than uh, than allowing harm to occur through inaction, and you know, for example, there's like the classic uh, ethical dilemma. Let's say there's a train coming down a track, and there's one person who on one track, and five people on another track. Would you switch the train from killing the five mm-hmm. people to killing the one person? The needs of the many. That's the only option you have. I mean, so it's, a, it's a contrived situation where you know you you can't warn them in time. You're you're standing next to the thing that shifts the tracks. You have one moment. Would you shift the track so that five people live and, and only one person dies? And we, we've discussed this before. Yeah. On past podcast. Right. And versus, you know, would you would you shove that person onto the track in order to stop the train and save five people? Most people most people would divert the train, but most people would not shove the person in, onto the track and directly kill them. So we're, we're re- reluctant and morally bothered more by um, the more direct action you have to take in order to to cause harm, the more that bothers us emotionally. I wonder if if we'd be likely to, to push, to, you know, to, to, to kill the person, if the person we were killing to save the others was completely unaware of our hand in it. Because I think that, like, when you talk about no one watching, the person you're affecting is watching. And so I think that would affect your indecision. But maybe if, like, it was an unconscious person whose life you would be trading for, you know, a whole train full of other people. 
maybe right. more likely to do it. Well, yeah, there's all kinds of permutations. Like, does the number ever get big enough that you would yeah. do it? You know, maybe not for five people. Would you, how about ten? How about a hundred? How about a million? You know, at some point, it seems obviously. You know, would you sacrifice one person to save the world? I think anyone would do that. So where does the where does the Superman wouldn't threshold would get crossed? Spin the it, dep- it depends on the person. Well, there's also that too. You know, a, a, a anonymous person you don't know versus somebody famous versus some versus your uh, family member. Yeah, it's it, it uh, the equation changes when you change all those details. So uh, good job, guys. Sorry about that, Jay. Jay, you got a quote for us this week? I have a quote. This is a quote from Ferdinand Magellan. Rebecca, who is this man? He was a famous explorer who sailed around the world. Didn't he go around, uh, the first one to go around uh, Africa? Southern yeah, tip of Africa? So. Is, that, he, is that Cape of Cape, Good Hope? Cape Horn or Cape of Good Hope? I think it's Cape Good, Good Hope. Hope. Well, didn't he do both because he went around the whole world? Yeah, he, circum- yeah, he circumnavigated the, circumnavigated. the earth, went to Portugal and Spain. So I'm right. Yeah. He, he was Portuguese. <laughs> he lived uh, in 1480 to 1521. And he said, the church says the earth is flat, but I know that it is round. For I have seen the shadow on the moon, and I have more faith in a shadow than in the church. Ferdinand Magellan! Yes. Couldn't the earth have been shaped like a plate, though? <laughs> But it always, <laughs> always throws a uh, the, an arc of a shadow on the moon. <laughs> Bunch of flat earthers. Right. It's actually a myth that uh, that scholars, uh, medieval scholars, thought the Earth was flat. It was uh, yeah, essentially true. known right. since the time of the ancient Greeks, at least, that the Earth oh, yeah. Earth was round. Yeah, they figured it out right. a long time ago. Yes. And the, the shadow was only one line of evidence. There were multiple the lines of evidence. Disappearing ship's mast. Yep. Well, thanks for joining me all this week. Shirley, Thank you, Steve. Good to be conjoined. And until next week, this is your Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe is produced by SGU Productions, dedicated to promoting science and critical thinking. For more information on this and other episodes, please visit our website at www.theskepticsguide.org. You can also check out our other podcast, the SGU 5x5, as well as find links to our blogs and the SGU forums. For questions, suggestions, and other feedback, please use the Contact Us form on the website or send an email to info at theskepticsguide.org. If you enjoyed this episode, then please help us spread the word by leaving us a review on iTunes, Zoom, or your portal of choice. Theorem is performed by Kineto and used with permission.